It's my favorite part of every superhero movie. It's the origin story, and everybody has one. Welcome to Pinecone Turkey's The Origin Story Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Henry Harris, and it's my privilege to interview superheroes from all walks of life to find out how they got from A to B, to see where they might be going next, and how we all can learn from their journey. Hello, this is Michael Henry Harris, and welcome to part two of my conversation with actor, writer, Steve Coulter. Enjoy. Yeah. Well, tell me the story, and I don't know if I read this, or if I heard somebody tell me, or maybe I've heard you tell me, but it's been, it's been a while. Tell me how you got your script to somebody who could hire you to be a writer. Oh. Isn't this a good story? Yeah, it, it's, but it's not your... T- I remember I did a... After I had been writing for a few years, I did a, like, you know, I was invited to do a symposium and, like, how to become a successful writer. Well, let's go back. So when did you start yeah. writing? Well, it was sort of... Uh, again, that was something I never intended to do. It was more... I, again, by accident, one morning in 19... Would have been about 1998, maybe or so. Um, my wife and I were waiting to get into the Flying Biscuit on McLennan, and it hadn't opened yet. And there was a couple doors down; it's not there anymore. There was like a Christian uh, thrift store, which I don't know. And they had this book, which is not a Christian book, in the in the window. This, it said, Boy Dates Girl. And I was like, it just caught my eye. And I was like, what is that? So we went inside, and for 50 cents I bought it. And it was this book by Scholastic from like 1948 about, it was dating and etiquette tips. It was these columns written in to, the author was Gay Head, which was a pseudonym. Uh, and Gay Head is actually an island off of Martha's Vineyard. It's not a, some sort of sexual I I'm just not touching any of that. <laughs> make I'm your not own touching joke. your gay head. Make, make your jokes in the car. Uh, <laughs> Whoever's listening to this. <laughs> and long story short, I ended up creating a character because it, it was written in this really corny language, like "yikes" with two scoops and a cherry. But it was dating an etiquette guide for teenagers. But it was really good. It was really kind, soulful. I don't mean soulful Christian, but just really common sense advice about dating. It was very empathetic, uh, and and it was. But it was really funny how it was written. So I created a character. And, and there used to be this thing called Dark Knight Theater. On Mondays, a group of us would do scenes and sing and some dance pieces and do it at, a, at some theater, the Alliance or the Horizon, on a Monday nights, Dark Knight. And we were at the, I think it was the Horizon. So I created this character, which people kind of dubbed the Etiquette Man. And these, like, four pieces. And it went over really, really well. And it was really fun. So I ended up writing a short film based on that. This is what led to the rest. So I wrote that... Um, and we, uh, the film, I, I co-produced it with my wife, and I wrote it and directed it and acted in it, and not out of any ego thing, it was more like, because that's just what I uh, knew. And, uh, and we raised the money for it. It was back when there was not digital, so it was 1999, and it ended up costing $53,000 to shoot. Holy to shoot shit. On film. And it wasn't like, oh, well, gosh, you just had some... We had no savings. The first, I had to rent a school and to put the down payment on the school, I had to not pay my mortgage that month. We had borrowed that from my wife's aunt. So, yeah, so it wasn't... So anyone can do this. But, again, we were shooting on film, so everything was... It was so, so expensive. Yeah, film is... And I paid my crew. Uh, I had to pay them enough. There wasn't a lot of production in, in, in Atlanta at the time, but I did have to pay them enough so that if another job came up, they w- would still... 
do. Yeah, because there was probably only one full crew maybe back then, or yeah, maybe one and a half, couple, yeah. two. And so I, was, I had a great crew, and but also I needed to have them for eight straight days um, because I was, I, and I didn't have any window because the three leads in the film were all headed off to, like literally I think we wrapped on a Friday. The following Monday, they were all headed off to college. So I didn't, you know, there was no... But anyway, that film uh, ended up doing very well at film festivals and got, it was on the cover of USA Today and the cover of LA Times. So it got a lot of, and, and then, so then my wife and I co-wrote a script based on a novel that we found uh, that was mainly about these African-American kids. Uh, it was called Keisha's House by a, a writer in Indiana named Helen Frost. And the book was sort of a, a lot of monologues and things, but we created this film about this uh, a woman who forms kind of a halfway house, self-made of all these different kids. Did you get the rights before you started yeah, writing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, tell me just and the cliff notes of how you got the rights. We did and because what we met process her. Was that Helen like? Frost. And actually, this boy is a long story, but the woman who wrote uh, the Boy Dates Girl book, I'd always tried to track that. I got the rights to do that to write the short film because Scholastic owned it. Luckily, it was before Scholastic had the Harry Potter, Harry Potter stuff. So they were like, well, sure, you can do yeah. this movie. Um, but I always wanted to find out who that writer was because she started, we, we, it was an incredible adventure we did. We got to meet all these people, went to Hawaii, LA, New York, and I always wanted to find the writer. And I got this call one night from this woman named Helen Frost and she goes, I think I know who Gay Head is and who's the pseudonym is. And it was this writer named Ruth Lang Hendricks who was about to turn 80 in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where Helen was from. And she had been this She'd been this young newspaper writer in writer in, in New York right after World War II. She hung out with uh, Marlon Brando and Tennessee Williams. And all that. Then she'd moved to Indiana. She married a preacher and moved to Indiana, but still a writer. But she had written, so it explained why these were so well written, because she was a really good writer. Who, And I said, you know, that's what inspired. And so I ended up sending a tape of the movie to this woman, and we developed this relationship. And they flew us up. Indiana to this for a film festival and they screened our film and so th and that writer showed us this novel so we uh, I bought the rights for her basically I think for a dollar but then it was written into the contract if the film was produced then she got a certain per certain percentage of the budget so it's the same author uh, no, it was uh, like the woman who, had, who was the friend of the older woman. Okay. Uh, Helen Frost, who's actually a poet and writes a lot. She writes a lot, and she's very, very good. So we, we got the rights to this Keisha's House book. So since it was a predominantly African-American cast, oh, we won a big, the Atlanta Film Festival used to have uh, the Southeast Media Maker Award, which is like $100,000 of, not just, you don't get like a bag of money. <laughs> you get $100,000 of in-kind services like editing and film processing, back then film processing, hmm. um, studio space, props, lighting. That's so amazing. What a great thing. And it was great to get investors. So we were just trying to get raise money to make the film. Uh, and I thought, and I knew Tyler Perry was starting to become active. And I knew Ruben Cannon was his producer out in L.A., so I'd been trying to send the script to Ruben Cannon and, and trying different, and never heard anything back. And and so we were kind of coming up against. We had a, you also have a time limit and of how soon you could raise the money. And I happened I had done one role in a Tyler Perry movie, um, I think Medea's Family Reunion, just a day player. So it wasn't like they knew me; they knew of me. They had used me. They were doing Daddy's Little Girls, and this is where you talk about fourteen different little bits of fate. There's a friend of mine named Bart Hansard, actor in town, and back then he was more heavy set. 
And he was supposed to play the role of this doorman in, in Daddy's Little Girl, in the scene with Idris Elba. Well, they didn't have time to, to make his wardrobe, because he was heavyset at the time. So, but they knew, I guess they called me in because I was average height and weight, whatever, and they wouldn't have to do special stuff. Right. So I go in for a fitting for that just to get fit. And it's at Tyler Perry's old studio on Crock Street. And so while I'm there, the wardrobe designer happens to be an alumni of the North Carolina School of the Arts who I hadn't seen in like 10 years. And he goes, hey, what have you been up to? And I said, well, I just wrote this script that won an award and then, and then. And he, I said, I've been trying to get it to Ruben. He goes, Ruben's upstairs. He works upstairs. And I was like, oh. So after I shot the film, and about a week later, I, I dropped by the production office, and I had a copy of The Etiquette Man, the short film I'd made, and a copy of the script. And I just dropped it off. Because I knew at least it would probably get to him, because he was probably 20 yards behind the reception desk. And then about a week later, I got a call from Ruben Cannon saying, have you ever thought about writing for TV? And I was like, no. Because I didn't know that he was about, they were spo- they'd just gotten a big order to do uh, House of Pain like, and, and Meet the Browns. And uh, so, yeah, he, so he sent me a, he said, here's a little footage of some test stuff we've done and the sample script. And so we said, and I co-wrote that first script with my wife. And so we took about three days, sent it in. And then Ruben called back. Oh, he, first what he called, he said, he said, do you hear that in the background? And it was my film, the short film I'd done. He goes, we just finished watching a movie. And so that was kind of cool. That's very cool. Um, and then so then he called back uh, about, I guess we turned it in on a Friday, maybe the following Tuesday. Uh, after I turned in the script, he called and he said, you're going to be really busy. Uh, so we, yeah, so I was a staff writer for two years and, uh, and then the head writer for a year. But that's where I learned to be a writer because I didn't know anything about writing, you know, like as an actual job we had to write every day. And because we would do three shows a week, shot three shows a week. So it was almost like writing for live TV. You're just like constantly, constantly, constantly. All right, so let's talk about that. Let's yeah. talk about that muscle being able to do that and let's talk about what you learned and yeah, it was, and what, what is that like day to day to be in a writer's room? What it was, process? It was, at first it was awful because I, we, we, we wrote this script you know, that got us the job. And, I, and we, they couldn't, they, they were going to pay us as one person, so you know, we had a child, so I, I ended up being the one to go in. And, you know, the, uh, Ruben, we ran into him one day, we were about to go in, he had our script and he went, this is, he'd written across it, marvelous. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> if I do say so myself. But the, he hired us, and the head writer they had did not hire us. And again, we were, you know, I was a little, I was a little white guy, and uh, and I was out a real outsider in terms of being hired outside. You know, the head writer had hired everybody else, and I had been hired by Ruben. So I think there was a little bit of resentment. I ended up getting along with the head writer. She and she was actually a very, very good writer, but she'd hired some friends, and the, the people personally were great, but they weren't really all great writers at the time. At least the way it worked too, we were conferencing with LA, so you'd have like four of us here and seven writers in Los Angeles around a, a speaker. Not a great way. No, it doesn't, yeah. But they did bring everyone together at first. So, But I didn't realize how writer's room worked is you bring in your script, and I thought they'd just go in and correct spelling. <laughs> but they they go over it and, and dilute, and you're what, like you brought your child in, and it's like watching them tear all the clothes and change the hair color of your child, 
and feed your child different food, and you're like, no. So uh, that was terrible. It was well, it was excruciating. So were you are you involved in like breaking down like the season arc, or well, they, what yeah, do they give you per episode before yeah, you go we off were to write? Out a lot. Like you know, you were assigned. I think I'm trying to remember that for the first script we may have been yeah we were assigned like we were just sort of assigned that first time and later on we would break down arts and I guess we were assigned a a plot you know an outline and uh, we and they just they tore it apart like they they diluted jokes and and it's like and I wanted to go but Ruben said it was already really good and I found it even still thinking about that makes my stomach hurt because it was like almost on principle. Like it's almost without even really looking at it, they already started punching it up. And I was like, if it ain't broke, why are you breaking it? Right, but... Yeah, and it was... And then also Tyler Perry at the time, so that was the first excruciatingly awful thing that happened. Uh, and I ended up being very defensive because I didn't, I didn't, you know, and these guys were all used to that. And, and so they were like, what's the big deal? Why are you being so... You can't... Your script isn't precious. So it was like... That's like saying, my three-year-old isn't precious. <laughs> I just right. wasn't used to that. And then also, at the time, Tyler Perry had never hired writers before. He was used to... And he used to just work on his feet. There was a lot of improvisation with his plays and stuff. So the first script, I wasn't on set for it. We had written the script. We were still relatively proud of it. Some of... You know, a lot of what we had written... But then I remember we invited friends over to watch the first episode, and then virtually nothing, maybe one or two lines were still there. And I remember just thinking, I hate this job. So we, I kept doing it, and it got a little better over two years. And then I was supposed to direct for a while. Like one time, Tyler, they said, we want you to shut, because they know I directed this short film. And for a while, Tyler thought he was going to spend time away, so he wanted to have some directors. So I shadowed him, shadowed him, and one day he just turned to me and said, tomorrow after the read-through, it's yours. So I got to direct some. Um, well, uh, t- how did you, how did you really feel? How did you feel when I he was said terrified. that? Yeah, I was like, really? And that's, this is a really and, and people have I hear people go, oh, Tyler Perry's a monster. He's not a monster. And one of the things that is so cool, and at least when I was there, it was a meritocracy. It was not nothing about well, if you're buddies with Tyler. He would have none of that. I remember one time a, a new L.A. writer was brought in, and he would sort of hang by Video Village his first couple of days. And Tyler looked at him like a cockroach, and he just said, get away from me. You know, because it was like he knew what the guy was doing. So in that sense, because they, he'd seen my short film, he had liked it, so he thought, you know, and they would do that with like a background actor who give him a couple lines. If he, got, if he did a good job, he'd be brought back. And so... Um, and he ended up just not, he ended up not leaving ever, so he just then didn't end up using us as directors. But the same, when I became head writer, he handed me the football. And again, here I'm a white Canadian guy, you know, but he said, he liked some, I had been away for a few weeks, my father had passed away, and so I had a couple scripts that they hadn't punched up, and so, and he was very angry at the current writers, and he thought they were trying to sabotage him. By writing poor scripts, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" It's like they're not that, doing that; they're just writing poor scripts. <laughs> There's no intentional behind it. Yeah, well, I had two scripts that they hadn't been punched, and we did a read through of like ten scripts for an upcoming season. And I had introduced this Mexican family, and he of the first, he he only got through four scripts, and two of them were mine, and he really liked them. So the next day, uh, they called me in. He said, "We're going to be making some changes. Do you want to be the head? Well, not. We'd like to ask you to be the head writer for House of Pain." They'll do meet the Browns out in LA. But then, that was a Friday, so I had to get a whole new staff. He fired everybody. 
What he was he was no he hadn't fired them yet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he the Fridays I said okay, and I had to find a staff over the weekend. Holy shit! And then on Monday when he got to the new studio that was, uh, which now is not is not the old studio too. I got to the studio and he had decided to fire everybody. So he kept me and one other guy. It's a big scandal about it. So we and then we had to run. So I had to head write for two shows that were going into production in about ten days. So we had to we had to punch up about ten scripts. We had to write from scratch about seven scripts, uh, and we and we pulled it off. But I hired. Uh, so a, how did you pull it off? It was really cool. It was it was that that was one of my favorite experiences. I, it was like the Dirty Dozen. Uh, I hired. We had this other Joe Hampton. This guy, we, he was already was a good writer. We hired. I hired a woman who some writers we had you know farmed out scripts to earlier, and I went. But I hired this one guy. He had uh, written columns for black barber shops. He was just a naturally great writer. He hadn't written for TV before. One woman was a stand-up comedian. Uh, one woman was a she'd written uh, these novels. But they were all parents. That was one thing. They all were parents, which is none of the other writers have been parents except for one. And so we had only, and instead of like eleven writers, we had about six. And so we just went. We just sort of. Decided, and Tyler even came. He brought me aside. He goes, "Steve, if this is too much for you, just let me know." And I was like, "No, we're going to do this." And so we busted our asses. And I know we did a table read. And there was times where Tyler, you do a table read, and he'd go, "This is bullshit." And he'd just walk out. And you know, he was, you, you either knew right away. So after all this work, to make a long story short, you know, about these 10 days, we get to this first read through, and we're all like, and, you know, and we read like three pages, and then he closes it. He goes, I read enough. And I was like, oh, no. He goes, this is what I've been waiting for. Let's shoot this. Let's just shoot it. Well, let's rehearse, you know. And we were like, that was one of, that was, it was a joyous day. And we, it was such a, a group effort. But one of the things is I hired writers that were better than me. I hired a guy. One guy was a, uh, he, was, he had been the head writer and showrunner for Just Shoot Me on CBS uh, because I just wanted the best writers. And I was like, I don't right. care. I don't need to be the, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll head, you know, I'll supervise and do this, but I don't need to. I have you people know. around you to make you yeah, look better. Yeah, the writer before, the head writer, she had not hired writers that are better than her, uh, which I don't think was a good idea because the quality of the scripts was really pretty poor. Could you tell when you were presenting him a, a script, like, would you agree with his analysis? Oh, this is bullshit? Like, you're like, oh, I knew that. I kind of felt Sometimes, that was going to happen. Other times no? it was very frustrating because as we went on, he got under a lot of pressure. And I remember his mom was very ill, and then things got very volatile. Right before, I, I I had wrote for a year, and then it just, I was not happy there. One of the reasons was because it wouldn't be consistent. And sometimes you get mixed signals. The, the producer, you, the executive producer would tell you certain things we want. And then Tyler would want certain. So you're sort of like, well, Dad said this, and Mom said this. And it's not, like, I remember one time we had a script. That had, you know, Meet the Browns was much more of a... Uh, it's kind of like more improv. The, the the head star would get more improvisatory, and he was more sort of. Um, well, we had references that we thought were kind of archetype, like African American archetypes, and it wasn't like I don't know them, but the writers had come up with them, and I was still responsible for it. But there was like he was eating wings or something, whatever, and Tyler just got furious, and he said, "I'm just tired of this step and fetched bullshit." Da 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 da, and he shut down production on this one episode. And I remember I went back to. The writer's room was like, well, what do we, I think I just cost him $100,000 or whatever it costs. We never shot that episode. 
Um, but then a week later, he was putting in stuff like, oh, yeah, he's eating chitlins and stuff. So it was weird. It was this kind of inconsistency. That would be very frustrating because you couldn't go, well, you just did this. Last no, week. you don't get that to have that conversation, do you? And, and it's his, a lot of times it'd be like, it's his show. He can do whatever he wants. So that would be, it got to be very frustrating. Like, I remember one of the things that made me want to leave was, and it wasn't so much him. Well, it, it was a little bit. We had written this one episode where I think this character, CJ, finds out his original father was white. And we did. We would do a read through of the next three, next week's three episodes on I think um, Tuesday or Wednesday, and we would get notes, and then we, you know, fix them up, and they'd be ready to shoot the next week. Well, we read one episode, and and literally people laughed. Tyler laughed so hard he almost fell out of his chair. It just went over really, really well. Then the next episode fell kind of flat, and I remember he said, "This is bullshit." And I remember, and I said, "But I'd had we at that point he was." traveling a lot so he had hired it was the year I was head writer and he had hired TV directors uh, uh, Kim Fields uh, her mom Chip Fields like genuine directors you know so and was running more in a uh, traditional and they had one of these directors had said they liked this script and so I stood up <laughs> with the whole you know production staff and I said well Tyler because first of all he just read an and part of the reason we're reading these is that it's almost like you got an A, and then you got, oh, you got a C. But it wasn't, instead of going, well, do a little work on it, it was like, you stupid shit. You know? Right, the A was completely forgotten. Yeah, and I wanted to go like, well, my teacher, Mr. Prince, my teacher said she kind of liked the paper. So I stood up and said, well, it needs work. But actually, our, one of the directors said they actually kind of like, oh, he said, who likes, who let this through? And I said, well, I think, you know, we, we got some good response. He went, who? I went, well, the director's like that. And then one of the directors went, well, actually, I never cared for it. And I was Oh, there. mother, yeah. are you kidding me? Yeah, and I was just like, wow. And as the bus rolled over me, and I remember sitting down, and one of my colleague writers was here on my staff, and I just said, I'm not going to be working here Because <laughs> I just didn't want to. Was like, right. I, said, I just got fucking cut off at the knees. Completely. And, Right in front of you. Yeah, and it was just, and it was painful. And after, and I was spending. I was there from seven in the morning till about twelve minutes. I was always there. It was a joke that I was always there. The cleaning ladies would come in. I'd lift my feet up, and they'd vacuum. You said seven a.m. to midnight. Easily every day, and I was there. And I, I was so passionate about it. I really, I, I, I really liked it. And I was busting my ass. For, and I remember he, he started to resent the writers because he'd never had. We were union, and I was paying a lot, a lot of money. Right. And he sort of started generalizing about, and he would mock us in front of the cast, and I was like, he, like he thought we were against him. And I was like, I'm here all the time. Right, this is my life right now. This is my entire I'm life. I'm, yeah. I don't see my daughter. I don't see exactly. my wife. Yeah, exactly. And my marriage is falling apart. My daughter I never saw. And, and I'm giving you my life and, and giving you everything I have. And, you, and so it became like, ah, this is not fun anymore. So I actually, just one morning... Several episodes, like you know, that day I just left for the afternoon. I went to Six Flags, I think. Did you really? Yeah, I just went. Do you walk around? You ride shit. Oh, oh, I rode because it was great. It was in, I think it was in, it was October because it was about three weeks before I left for good. So, Friday nights, it was great. It was just like it was, and I remember I just rode roller coasters, and it was great. And uh, but then one morning, it was in November of 2009, I just went in. I the night before, I had a script, and I'd written scripts in one night, and this was an easy script to write. And I literally found I could not get started on it. I was like, I put it off and put it off and put it off. 
and I just couldn't, and I went, that's it. And I walked in the next morning, I told the guys, I said, I couldn't write the script. I'm really sorry, because I'm, you know, and I have to go. And I went into the, the taping the rehearsal, and I told Reuben Cannon, I said, I'm going home. And he said, when are you coming back? I went, I'm not, I'm done, I'm going. And so it was really kind of, and it was hard, because my daughter was in private school at the time. So I didn't put a lot of financial thought into it. She still had two years to go. So it was rough because, but I just, I couldn't, I was, at, like I said, my life was sort of spiraling out of control at that time. And uh, I just, I, I And you were done. I was, I was done. Were you by yourself at Six Flags? No, I was, I'd, I'd been separated from my wife for about a, a year and I was, and I was seeing someone else. Okay. And that was not a good choice. Yeah, that was not a good idea. Not a good idea. I mean, I just love that you went there. I just yeah, we rolled roller coasters, and uh, it was great. It was just like just. Uh, so how did you feel after you said like I'm done? Did you feel this weight, or was oh, it a cathartic, we, yeah, or no? No, it was. It was. I did feel a big weight lifted. The one thing I felt really, really bad about was, uh, uh, um, I left my writers in the lurch because I left them with a script that had to be written, and and that particular script ended up causing it would have still caused a huge it was a christmas script and we were writing about they were going to we were going to do a version of jesus and joseph where it's like you know joseph isn't the father and we you know and it ended up being really controversial with the cast they were like you know this is unchristian and it ended up being this terrible terrible thing it would have happened if i was still there or not only but i put my writers in a in a a, a bind because they had to write it really quickly because i it was due that day right that was so i had mixed with but there was a great deal of relief because there was just so excuse so much going on in my life that i needed to deal with so but it wasn't i didn't feel great and i was a little terrified of like i'm not gonna have any money now i mean i had saved up some but it was it was a, a relief, and it was time to go. So it doesn't sound like you're able to do any acting during this this time no, at all, or are you able still did, to do? Some I did some acting on the show. Like they had, it was I felt bad because there was a character we wrote of this really sleazy landlord that I wrote for the actor Lucky Yates. Okay, like, I wrote it for him. Y'all know from Archer, yeah. listeners, yeah. And it was He's I, great. I even told him and and made sure the character was calling him in, but when on the way. Like he was actually on his way to the studio when the producer said, "Steve, you're going to play this role." I went, what? And I said, "I can't." I said, "This is." Okay. He goes, "No, you're playing this role." And Lucky's already yeah. booked it so in this. Canada. He was a casting director. He was the casting director. He said, "No, you're going to play it." And I was like, "Well, okay." So I still actually owe Lucky a steak <laughs> dinner. Just oh, oh, by the way, going back to Bart Hansard. Yeah. Because it was literally because of him that because he couldn't play that role, I felt an obligation sort of to him. So I created the character in, in House of Pain, created a regular role named Bart, who was heavyset. And so he got, uh, he worked for like one or two straight years. And so I, yeah, That's I still also. owe Lucky. And so Bart owes me a steak. And I owe Lucky Yates. Well, so you got Bart back, definitely. Yeah. So and Lucky, Lucky's doing pretty yeah, great. Yeah. So. so I got to do, I, I did get to do that. I remember I did um, during a hiatus. Cause we, that was one thing that was kind of fun. Because you know, as a freelance uh, uh, worker, you never know when you're gonna work. Sure. And like I like this job I did the 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 Lifetime film, the Prince Charles thing. I was working for a month and like six weeks, and that's like for an actor, that's like forever. Like it's I'm amazing. set. <laughs> right. Like, and it's like for a month. 
Um, <laughs> but one thing with the writing job it was like a salaried job. So someone could say, "What are you doing in you know like you know let's say for right now what is it? It's May tenth, eleventh. Someone would say, what are you doing July 3rd? I could actually make plans. Because now it's like people say, what, are you going to be free the 14th of June? It's like, ah, maybe. Maybe. So, that, so then, so I would have a hiatus. So I could audition for And I remember doing, uh, it was really fun. It was a PBS did a, a, a TV film of uh, Leo Frank. A really wonderful series. I mean, a, a movie. Uh, like Seth Gilliam was in it. Uh, and, um, and I played the main prosecutor. So I got to do that. But, and I did some a lot of voiceover stuff for the show. And they would do like, Steve, can you do this for free? I was like, no. Just because I'm here. Right. They're, very, they're, they're, they're just cost conscious like any all producers are. Um, so I did it. Yeah, but luckily, and then right when I left, the film incentive had passed. The film incentive passed, I guess, 2008 maybe. So production was picking up. So I actually timed out. Pretty well, so I got back to acting, and I've been working, knock on wood, pretty consistently. Did since then. did um two questions? So did your were your muscles still there? Did you did you lose anything yeah. from not having I been working no, out? I also during hiatus like, I also did plays. Okay, because so um, I haven't done a lot of theater recently, but I did. I I got to do actually two or three plays during those breaks. Um, so yeah, the muscles were still there. Um, um, yeah, uh, yeah, I guess I guess they were. Does your process change from uh, working something on camera to working yeah, something on yeah. stage? Theater is so much more physical, um, uh, and you just have to sustain it for two hours. You don't get to retake it. It's and your and the biggest difference that I miss, like the last play I did was three years ago at the Alliance, and. Particularly with that show, it was uh, Edward Foote that uh, Chris Coleman directed. Chris Coleman, he founded the Actors Express here. He's been out in Portland. Now he's at Denver. He's yeah, now he's got a Denver Center. Incredible director, and I'd always wanted to work with him. But in terms of process, the rehearsal process is, and you know, the same feeling. The with theater, it's just so it's it's hard. It's ex you're exploring. You can play with stuff. You try stuff. With Chris Coleman specifically, it was like an acting class because he's really like pure Meisner. So it was like an it was like going back to school, which is great. And he's also a director that you can really trust. So anything he said to try, he and he engendered a confidence in his cast, and it was also a great cast. But you also have that camaraderie, which you get on. I've I've had that on a film when it's a long shoot and you're there. But oftentimes in a film you're there for, and they used to you know in the past it used to be, they would shoot you. You get a job and it'd be like two, three weeks. Now they'll shoot you out in a day. Like I did Brockmire, and we shot eight episodes simultaneously. Like a lot of times they do block shooting where they'll be shooting parts of one or two episodes at the same time. But Brockmire, we shot in the space of twenty days, eight episodes. So you you don't have this long term. You know, with a play, you have you know three, four weeks of rehearsal and four week runs. So you get. So I missed that. So and my process. I guess going back, yeah, the process some, in terms of looking at the script is the same thing. I still break it down the same way. But you have, well, it's interesting on film, and I think I've gotten better at this. You don't have the rehearsal time. You rehearse, you run through it once, and you get a couple notes and then do it. So when I first started doing stuff in film, I was always disappointed when I would see it because it's like, ah, oh, you've had time to think about it. But over time, you get good at 
digging deep quickly, like trying to get to not your first, you know, first impression, like get down to your more soulful stuff. And what I think that helps in going back to theater is now you've learned to go, go deeper quicker so you can find things a little sooner. Whereas before in theater, just because of the time involved, you kind of circle the characters. Right. Um, so I think it really complements the two. Because also on film, theater I think is more forgiving. It, sh- it shouldn't be just because of the distance of the audience. If there's a certain moment in a scene that's not working that night, you kind of can do a little speed bump over it. Whereas in film, it, they're watching every moment, and if you're false, it, it, it can be glaring. It picks up everything, right, the camera? So you get used to being meticulous about every moment being present, which really helps theater. Uh, so I found, having not done theater for a while, I really enjoyed doing it after having been, done a lot of on-camera stuff. Um, plus just the camaraderie, the, the dressing room. I love the atmosphere of dressing room and the friends and, yeah. and the audience. And it's, hard, and it's just harder. There's that, and you, I'm sure you've heard that quote. Al Pacino, I think, said it, that acting in theater is like walking a tightrope and acting in film is like walking on a line painted on the floor <laughs> you still got a balance and also the, the amount of waiting in film and TV you just sit around a lot in, and I thought there's actually a, a, it's comparable to when you do tech rehearsals for a play where mm-hmm. you you'd start doing the scene and we stop and then they do get the sound and the light and you stand around actors hold please yeah it's that. so it's a little bit like that but film you wait around so 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 much so how do you keep yourself fresh when you're doing that you're That's you're sitting a, in a chair like are you no, re-warming I, up or I, you I tend to walk around a lot because you can get you can phase out and if you've had to wait for a long time you can really get kind of numb and uh, uh, so I try to walk I try to walk um, I do a lot of walking around I stand and I watch so I try to stay involved I try not. I try not to bring my phone to the set because, and which is a shame because in, in, I'm going to sound like an old fogey, but in the old days you'd sit and talk with your fellow actors and get to know each other and trade stories and sometimes talk about what you're working on. Um, whereas now everyone's sitting there just looking at the phone and checking their texts. Right. But I, I leave my phone in my car or the trailer or whatever. Um, but I do, I'll go to Video Village and sort of watch stuff. Um, Explain to folks what Video Village is. Video Village is, is where now we're 90% of the time, the director and producers and writers, it's television, the writers will be there in front of a bank of several monitors now. There used to be just usually one because there's usually one camera, but now with since it's digital, you can have several cameras. And that's where they sort of sit and usually direct from there. And then they'll come around and talk to the actors. Um, so you can watch the the setups and the takes and stuff, and it's just you know it's interesting to see how they're doing stuff. And I like to see how they do it. That's what, when I directed my little short. I had I had studied I, again going back to how I when you asked me how I taught, I just sort of modeled. You know, I watched what the successful directors had done and tried to do that, which is mainly preparation and also study. I remember studying about Spielberg and all these guys and Sidney Lumet. They were so prepared, and they had prepared for contingency. They had contingency plans because um, I'd been on sets where things were not planned, and the script gets things get. You throw a lot of baby out with a lot of bathwater because time. And I wanted. I did not want that to happen. So, right. Um, yeah, but that so to stay. Fr- I I do that, and literally just physically moving is really important because I think you just. You can. I remember. I remember one time I was called at like three in the afternoon, and we didn't shoot till about two in the morning. 
by the time we got to the scene, I was like, I don't even know who I am anymore. <laughs> right. And, and especially, I remember early on when you have, you know, you're playing like a day player, you're going, you're acting for a day, literally, and you have maybe three lines. And I compared to like, you know, you have three bullets and the, and the whatever's, <laughs> whatever you're going to shoot is coming <laughs> down the line. And you can't, you, got, you, you don't have like a couple of chances. So, you, so you've run your three lines 8,000 times since 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So they've lost all life, spontaneity, and you don't even know what you're saying anymore. So that's a little, oftentimes I will, it's hard because your brain will tell you, you got to go over your lines, you got to go over your lines. And I have to go to the right side of my brain, the creative, and go, hey, I got it. Let's, don't think about them until you get on set. So be, you have to sort of foster this feeling of being uncomfortable instead of being... I remember for a while as an actor, I was so prepared, I would kind of manufacture a supposedly subtle performance. You know, It would be like I would sort of act it well, but it wasn't really alive. Mm. Then I realized you got to sort of... That whole thing, you got to kind of forget it. So that is happening right then. And I discovered that accidentally once I was doing a play. And I got to rehearsal, and we were about to rehearse a scene. I thought we were rehearsing something else, so I hadn't prepared as well. So I barely knew the lines of this scene. So I was flying through the scene on the seat of my pants, and listening very carefully, and, all that, and it was agonizing. And then during a break, I was sitting out in the audience, while the, and the director comes up and whispers to me, he goes, Thank you, Steve. You're the only one that's alive today. And I, I nodded knowingly like, yes. Right, yes, yes. But then I realized, oh, that's what I should try to do. Right. Know it. I mean, know it better. But then because that's what I realized, oh, I've been, you know, when I did a play, I would run through every single line, you know, in the hour before I would go on stage because I was so, in, you know. You, you know, You're scared, yeah. You want to yeah, make sure you got it. And then I thought, and that's, again, that insecure part of your brain. And I thought, so I stopped doing that because I would always prepare but I'd say let's just trust that it's there and be more alive. And it and I did that, and it was amazing how much more alive, and and not you know just to there were there were it was a little more frayed edges, which is much more alive and more and it would be different night to night, not different words, but you know and that that was a good accidentally learned lesson. No, that's a great that's a great so, lesson. Yeah. What else? What do you tell when uh, the young actors when they come up to you or people who think they want to be an actor? Uh, advice and guidance like where, where just, do you send them just, uh, do it you know people often ask where's a good place to study i'm not that familiar with uh places to study in atlanta now i say get in a play just just go do it do it try to find you know if you find a theater company if you see a play you like try to work with them audition for them put on your own and now you can do your own film is just do it but you gotta like at anything you gotta put in the time. I mean, actors who want a career in it, I say it's it's not a mystery. I mean, there are certain people are. The more I've been doing this, you see, certain people are talented. And, and I, mean, I remember teaching there'd be some actors that boy, you could give them any scene, and they just had they just it's like baseball or you know some people have more talent at it. Right. Other people can get a lot better, but I think I, I would tell actors is prepare is put time in you know so many actors they don't i've done you know audition workshops and it's like okay you've had the scene for two days why don't you know the lines right like you want, and it's just simple so like put the time and it doesn't mean like in anything like i said you know if i get a a scene and it's like oh look at all the dialogue i don't get to watch i was right. planning watching the americans or atlanta it means like i gotta do this that but that's my job you gotta put and you know 
and and it's, it's not as rewarding. You know that's not as rewarding unless you put that time in. It's a pain because at times it's not fun. Like when you first get a script, it's like, oh god, here we. It's the wet bathing suit. It's like here we go. Yeah. You know, um, it's just and you can t- the people that have careers, they work hard. And I remember thinking, like going back to my acting school. I remember I decided I'm going to w- work harder than anybody else. I don't know where I got that from. I didn't didn't get it from my parents. Maybe it was fear. <laughs> um, and what does that and what does that mean in the acting realm? That means taking the time with your script and working those yeah, beats out and be more really the lines. really like not don't just do the bare minimum. Do more. I remember is do more than is asked of you. Like I mm-hmm. remember thinking, and part of that is insecurity. Like I think if I don't do that, I'm not good enough to do it. But part of it is that's how life works. Anyone you know that remember reading about you know Tiger Woods. You know he's not in his glory days anymore, but he would. He practiced more than anyone. Kareem, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Mike, Michael Jordan, uh, 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 LeBron James, they have a natural talent, but they work harder than any. They show up earlier, they stay later. That, you know, all the people I've admired, whether they're athletes or you know, Bobby Kennedy, they spent more time working. And, and like, you know, when Prince Charles, it's like, you know, I, I was like, I already have the job. But I remember thinking, and hopefully we'll see on Sunday night. (laughs) I mean, I watched, you know, hundreds of interviews with him to get the little nuances and drilled it and drilled it and drilled it again. And every time before, every day, it's like, you know, I remember they said, you've really got him, whatever. But I always had this this, uh, couple uh, audio video, audios and videos where I could really get his rhythm so each day before you I found went something in. that would instantly put like you back in that place you stretch you know that's why I went to a Atlanta United game those guys put the work in they do they don't just show up they're really they, they really practice and practice and practice and practice so I would again is put the time in um, read the script a whole bunch do the research do the extra and it'll behoove you. you you can tell when someone walks in in any job but especially in acting Who's prepared? Because first of all, there's a little twinkle of confidence, because you know, if you put that time in, again, maybe I do that too out of insecurity. I'm not naturally confident, uh, so if I know if I've put that work in, that gives me confidence. I need right. to really prepare, um, and I'm not like oh, because I've been in situations where I'm not as prepared. You don't have as much time, and I can't stand that feeling because you're you're reaching for no, it's you horrible. You feel like the, you can't get into the person's skin. It's like, and in writing, you feel the same thing in writing. When you first start a draft, someone compared it to, you know, when you turn on a hose that hasn't been on in a while, all this brown, awful water comes out first. Right. And when I first start writing, it's just like terrible first conscious thoughts, terrible, terrible, obvious. And then you start settling in. But you got to put the time in, and then you can start feeling like, oh, look, the characters are actually doing and saying things that I hadn't Right, they're doing their own thing. Everybody says that, and it's freaking magical when it happens. Yeah, but but it doesn't, you don't just sit, like I used, I learned it, my my wife, who's no longer my wife anymore, but she taught me a really big lesson, that Etiquette Man script, I was planning to sit down and write, and I had it planned Saturday, Monday, or whatever day, and then it was a rainy day, and and she goes, why don't you just just start right now? I go, yeah, but I don't, she goes, just sit down and write it right now. I was like, and I did, and it was like, I didn't want to, and I didn't feel inspired. And I think it's like, you don't really want to go to the gym. You don't really want to. And I'm saying this to myself. No, I get it. I'm always surprised <laughs> that once I do it, 
the inspiration comes from doing it. Not I always want to get inspired first. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, um, but it's but the action. Yeah, it's the action, the action that causes which us the is inspiration. Because you don't want to do it at all. No. Writing is. is, is uh, are you writing now? Are you still writing? Not right now. I haven't. The last thing I wrote was about last fall. The Alliance contact. They had a play that was about to go into rehearsal that needed a complete rewrite. What? And I was. Yeah, it was. But again, going back to Tyler Perry, I, I thought I had like seven days to write it. Because, well, the nice thing is they had all the characters. They already had a cast, so I knew who I was writing for. Well, I'm sorry, but that seems like that's extraordinary. They were going into production for yeah, a play well, and yeah. wanting to rewrite. This is yeah. a full length play? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, well, it was for the Theater for Young Audiences, so about an hour and a half. And they had, and I guess it, it had. Yeah, I'm not sure what the circumstances were, but I guess they saw that it just, they'd been, I think they'd had a rewrite. Like the first, you know, the rewrite and the rewrite just wasn't, it was just sitting. It looked like it was going to get there and just didn't. Yeah, and it did not. It just didn't have, and it, speaking as, uh, to another writer, there was no conflict. Mm. There was a lot of talking. And so the easy part of it was that there were already characters. So I didn't have to start from scratch. So, but I, it was just, it was a, page one rewrite basically but because of my days at Tyler Perry it was, it was kind of funny because I thought I had seven days because he said and I said I read I went yeah I can do this in seven days but after I said yes I realized I was I got a job uh, in this uh, film shooting in Montana a TV show but I was leaving so I realized I had three days <laughs> <laughs> but that's I, I'm not good I'm not one of those guys that can just I write every day I only write if I have a deadline like, like one time I was I did this I was supposed to write a pilot for this woman and she said oh just any time before January and I went I'm going to give it I had to give myself a deadline because I said if you say any time it will be any time yeah it'll you know I'll just like procrastinate right um, so it was great that I had just these three days and so I just wrote for three straight days and it, and it was great. It turned out really, really, knock on wood, really well. And it was big. I got to see it, and it was very successful. But I followed, but again, what, Tyler Perry, that experience taught me, because we didn't have time to be cute. When, also, when you wrote, you had to get to the essential conflict right away. And especially with comedy, it has to be a bigger conflict so that they take actions that are a little more extreme. Right. And so the, with this, it's just, it was just fun. You take your character and just throw crap at them. That you don't. This is what's hard. Is you I, and I recently told this to a friend of mine who's writing a script. Because uh, his characters kept in his first draft, they kept getting out of the problems too easily. And I said, you gotta. It's hard. You have to write. And the Breaking Bad did this extremely well. Uh, 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 is you gotta get your character into a situation you don't know how to get them out of. Mm. You you'll figure it out, but you gotta really. So I tried to do that. This is by a young woman. Young girl, middle school girl, who's just and I and I made really big. Her parents have left her father. Was a terrible father, uh, and and the and the and genuine cruelty of of things that happened to her, and how does she get through that? And and uh, so that was fun though, and that was because you have to really dig down. Because if you have to really dig down, then the audience won't anticipate it because you didn't know how you're going to solve it. Right. So did you ever? Did you remember Breaking Bad? Like, yeah. There's a scene, one of the, I forget, it's the scene where uh, uh, Brian Cranston's character, he's in the Winnebago in like a junkyard. The cops and Hank are converging on it. And you literally think there's no way for him to get out of that. And the show, Vince Gilligan and the, the show has a podcast that after each episode, 
they would discuss it. And it was great because they'd have the writer. Oh, that's very cool. Usually, um, and one of the actors. And he talked about Vince Gilligan said in the writer's room, they got him into the Winnebago, into the problem, and it took them like four days to figure out how the hell to get him out of that. Well, that's amazing. Thought, it was a great lesson, I thought. That's yeah. what you got to somehow... But it's hard. It's like, because you go to a gym, you don't know how much... You know, you, it's... And I think a writer's room helps that, where you can... Uh, work to, to make something better. Well, I just heard a novelist say, he said the exact same thing, like Michael Ferris Smith, I think is his name, and uh, he was just like, that's that's the fun. Yeah. Like, okay, I have no idea how to how to get this person out of this. Yeah. And that's that's kind of the, the scariest, because, and that's the joy. Yeah, and, and but it's hard because your natural instinct is to not put yourself and your character in that position because why would you want to give yourself a problem you can't solve it's like you don't want to just go drive in the car without your ways well steve thank you so much for your time i want to be cognizant of it oh. and not have your whole entire friday uh <laughs> but there's so many things i didn't bitch. get to it's like you've been on the walking dead banshee you've been these cool shows um so maybe you can come back and we'll, sure, we'll talk some sure, details sure, about actually sure. the filming of those shows sure. but i I really think, especially, um, anyways, I just loved, I loved all this. Oh. So I always end the podcast with these series of questions. Yes, I hear. Um, so I can't remember what they are. So, uh, you know, here we go. Okay. They're going to be short questions. <laughs> they do not have to be short answers. Uh, like cities and countries for 500. Exactly. Uh, is there a bookstore that you loved or that has been oh. important to your life other than the one you got fired at for reading? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I m- remember Oxford Books here? Were I, you here then? I wasn't. It used to be in, uh, uh, Peachtree Battle. When I first moved to Atlanta, I didn't. I only went to things on Peachtree because I, <laughs> right, I just know. didn't know anywhere else to go. And it was a great bookstore, independent bookstore, big bookstore that had everything. Um, so that was a favorite bookstore. Um, there's one in Vermont that I went to. My sister lives up there, and it's oh god, where was it? It's it was just. First of all, they had everything, and it's very homey. A little coffee area. And they had staff picks, and they, but they have a really, really smart staff. Um, I remember as a kid, I, we used to, I lived in South America, as I told you. But in the summer, we lived in Vermont, way up, way, like eight miles from the nearest town in this little cabin. But we would go, uh, we were about an hour from Middlebury, where the college was. And they had a, it was a college, you know, town, so this great bookstore. And it was like this holy shrine because I would go there and there was I was a huge baseball fan massive massive baseball fan and there's a book called This Great Game oh, I still have this book but it and I I would go there just to look at the because there's pictures there was a lot of text in it, but these incredible photographs of, of Major League Baseball and I would just go there we'd go there you know once every three weeks and I'd go to this and find it on the shelf and I actually got it for Christmas that year but yeah there is something about a bookstore I have a uh uh Fantasy, just like a small town. It's usually Vermont. There's little towns that are around the bend of a road, and there's a little, it's raining, and you go in, and it's cozy, and you go find a book. And yeah, this is, and I still, I love, I'll go, and if I have free time, like if I'm somewhere early, or I'll go to a Barnes and Noble. I do miss the small little, you know, that smell. Oh, yeah. That's oh, that yeah. thing. And, and, I miss, and borders I miss because they had the armchairs you could sit in. Oh, yeah. Just go in and read. Um, and I do have I have a thing where I, there's certain books I don't buy but I'll go in and read them because it's like I don't want to really own it right but I'll go in and sort of read a little bit of it 
at the at, at the bookstore. And then come back in come in back a couple in weeks and so kind of read a little more. List and a little memo thing of books that I, I do that with. Do you, oh, you really? You you keep track of that? Yeah, yeah that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, I have a little thing. I've just got it's because I or you'll hear something. Uh, of a book that you want to read, and I'll make a note of it. So I make sure I. Uh, Are these fiction or nonfiction? Generally, do you read both? M- more. I, I went for a long phase of nonfiction reading. Uh, a lot, like I said, history and war. The guy who wrote, um, oh, what is it? Uh, uh, oh, he writes kind of historical fiction. They're all. Oh, well, he wrote the one about the Lusitania recently, the Dead Calm. He writes about hu- real human events. He wrote about the one the. They did the sunken treasure. No, gosh, what is his name? Um, I'm going to look it up because it's, it's worth, uh, because he's a really, really good writer, and I think you'd like him. Um, I heard somebody recently, I forgot who it was, but he'd written one on, like, it wasn't Pirates, but it was about, like, buried treasure, and he's got a new one out now uh, that sounded pretty amazing. Not dead, it's not Dead Calm. Maybe that's not it. What's the name of the book? Um, oh, he wrote, God. Um... What is this? It's really. He wrote. There's actually a book that's been optioned by uh, Scorsese to direct and Leonardo DiCaprio. To, it's, it's about the murder in the Chicago World's Fair, the uh, the, the Devil in the White City. Yes, Eric Larson. Yes, Eric, Eric, Eric Larson. Something like Eric that. Larson. Because he writes these novels, and all the dialogue is taken from actual things they said or wrote. Or oh, that's cool. Um, but he's sort of he's a good writer, so he shapes it in more of a, a dramatic narrative that's very riveting. He did think about the Lusitania, which was sunk. Um, it's so I do yeah. So that was my transition from nonfiction <laughs> to fiction. I've been re- reading. I'm a, as my girlfriend Mary says, "You're a reader, aren't you?" I'm always what a great compliment. I'm always, I just I have to. Part of it is is uh, I, I I get very restless. I'm not good at if I'm not working. Reality is kind of hard for me. <laughs> Does that make sense? I mean, even as a kid, I would I would I pretended I was like my parents that my real parents had died, and then my parents. Uh, and no disrespect to people who really lost their parents in, earlier in life, but I pretended they had been killed in some war. And I was the adopted by these people, but really more as a ward to protect. I was their bodyguard. Oh, cool. My therapist could probably make a lot of. Uh, but, and I would always, even now, I'll go on, they don't know this, but we'll go on like walks and I'll grab a stick and then pretend it's like a Winchester rifle and I'm guarding the people. That so makes me so I happy. Get, I get, and I, maybe that's neurosis, because it probably is neurosis, but I just, I get. So reading is 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 uh, I like falling into that. I'm reading a Joe Hill book now called The Fireman. Okay. Stephen King's son. Really good. And it's just entertaining. It's yeah. just it's just great, good old fashioned stories. It's not going to change the world. It's entertaining. It's fun. And I like. Yeah, but that's really fucking hard to do. It's hard to yeah, tell a story that works. It's and not an is, easy thing. He's really good. He's and he writes a lot like his dad. But he's really, I highly recommend, because I always thought he's just probably a knockoff. But he's, and I found out recently that his agent, for the first 10 years, didn't know who his father was. He just, he got, he got published on his own merits. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And after 10 years, he finally told his agent that um, my dad's Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. So that's just like, so he actually got, had a couple of bestsellers, you know. Right. And, on its and now own it merit. helps. I mean, I found out about it because it was like I heard Stephen King had a son that writes. Right. I was curious. But he writes, I've read now, I'm on my second book of his. 
he's good. It's real. So where? Thing. So if I was going to start with him, like where should I start? He wrote. I, I, he wrote a book. It was recently uh, a book of short stories. Well, that's what I. That's what. And they're, they're short, not short stories. There's four novellas. Okay. About, and that kind of piqued my interest. But I would say the one I'm reading now is his second novel. It's called The Fireman. And I'd recommend that. It All really, right, cool. It pulls you in. It's it's kind of it's like seven hundred. It's kind of like one of his big epic, like his dad's, but it's very funny. They're actually he has a, a different sense of humor than his dad, but he still has a good sense of. Humor. That's cool. And his dad did like the novella thing too. Like I think yeah, that, that might yeah, have been yeah, how yeah, I yeah. was introduced to him. And he was talks like about these... it. it's a different you know it's a different form than short story because he, he said but you really have to keep the plot going. You have to jump on and don't get off. And that's right. what's kind of fun about this is not. If I can remember, I'll, I'll, I'll look up the name of the because the short stories might be. I mean, the novellas might be a better place to start. They're dark. Um, one's particularly dark, but he, he explains why in the afterward. Like, oh, that okay, that makes sense. What he tells why he was inspired to write it. Oh, that's cool. But it leaves you. Oh, I forgot. <laughs> yeah, it's like outstanding. I can't uh, wait. It's like your soul gets a little tugged out your ears. Oh, and, uh, yeah. It's uh, it's about it's about a mass shooting. And it's oh wow! Well. And especially in this. In the, in the current climate. Yeah, all too... It's very horrifying. All too present. It's, yeah, it's very... Yeah. And he did it to bring an awareness, or, I guess, to that, so... Well, I won't even attempt a segue, but... Yes. So... No! <laughs> What's your favorite color? Right, well... Oh, God, this is... Oh, so that was this is almost yeah, so as bad. Bookstores was... Yeah, that was... Yeah, yeah I love the good... Right. like a good bookstore. So there's a fire. Yes. And this is almost oh, no. as bad as your favorite color. In your house, yes. uh, family pets are safe. Okay. You can grab three things. Oh. What would you grab? Oh. Well, I have a, I have a little strong box that has uh, mementos. And, you know, important papers, but also mementos. Um, like that original copy of that book, The Etiquette Man, that I based it on. Oh, that's cool. I have a, a box of... Uh, VHS tapes of my kids when they were little, which I need to convert. Yeah, you need to get that done, man. And those are because yeah, those are irreplaceable. Um, boy, get on stuff. Well, that I mean, that's that's the answer right there. Yeah, and I, I have a special box that I keep in the basement of like just I just call special little mementos or a, a certain job. I have like tickets to a premiere or something like that. I'd probably grab my special box. Well, that's very cool. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Do you have a uh, like a quote or like a like an inspirational kind of thing that's in your head or that you have visually where you see that kind of I, reminds well, you where your true north is or something like that? The only hero I ever really had. I remember, you know, as a kid, I, I had sports heroes and stuff. But I remember, and I and I discovered his work and writings and life. Uh, I became sort of obsessed with Robert Kennedy for years. Mm. I read every biography written about him. Because, uh, and I remember being sort of heartsick because, of, you know, what could have been. Because, and then I also, I was an actor and I thought, boy, if I had read this about his life, I would have done something different with my life. Because I also, sometimes you think like, well, I'm on a TV movie on Sunday night. <laughs> we, you, you know, because uh, you want to leave the world a better place than it was. Because he was a person that, that he, he had a favorite, it became a joke because... But it, he said, you know, some people see things as they are and ask why. Uh, others see people's things, things that have that are not and ask why not. Mm. And I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. It became, you know, when he was campaigning for president in 1968, which is hard, that's 50 years ago. 
the press corps knew that that was a symbol that, okay, we're getting, he's wrapping up now, so they would all rush to get onto the train or the plane or whatever, or the buses. Um, but, he, you know, and, but he was, so that, I guess there's a lot of quotes of his. He, have, he has a speech that he did from Cape Town, uh, South Africa, 1966. It's the ripple of, of hopes that every time one person takes an action, it sends out a tiny ripple of hope that unites with other ripples. It's those things where you think, like, well, I'm not going to make a difference. Um, so those kind of linger. That's cool. Uh, or if you see something, take an action. Don't just whine about it. Because he was, he was an example of, and he, he transformed because he was kind of a selfish, mean little fucker when he was younger. <laughs> but he went, like, for example, he went to West Virginia to, to find out about poverty. And he, it was so much more appalling and he went into this house. He wouldn't let the photographers in there. He went in there. And they said when he came out, and this is many accounts of his tears were streaming down his face. He goes, we're going right back to Washington. He went right back to Washington to his offices and start drafting this legislation. He was like, he would see something and take action. Wasn't afraid to change. No, and he also started a program that's still around in Bedford-Stuyvesant in New York, which is now kind of an okay neighborhood, but back in the 60s was a hellhole, where he combined getting the private sector to adopt a neighborhood mm. and, and working with government, working with the private sector, and the, and and that that for example that program is still going. That's that's, that's very um, cool. So I wish that it sounds like that where you go, man. Why just act? You, know, you want to do stuff. Yeah, you know. I get that. Uh, There's a, a famous uh, judge, uh, Card Cardozo, mm -hmm. and uh, he was the. The head of you know the Supreme Court judge, the New York Court of Appeals, yeah. which is the highest court there in New York State, and he you know you know a, a stalwart figure in the legal community, mm -hmm. and he would talk about well, I wish I wish I would have built bridges, yeah. like literal physical bridges, because I'd have been like hey look at that bridge yeah. I, that that's moving people across and I did that. Uh, is there a book or I film? I ask you, do you have a court? <sighs> Man, I've got a, I've got a billion of them. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. Uh, if you if there I'll was a fire that. and you could only take <laughs> yeah. one quote to live by, I would grab my book of quotes yeah. and well, I would. Is there a quote that's more like if you literally if you had sort of one quote, say okay, you have one quote that you can live by for the next year, what would it be, or the rest of your life, really? Yeah, I don't know. It would probably be something very akin to like the Golden Rule. Mm -hmm. You know, something kind of simple and basic. I have to think about that because I really do. Veronica quote like babies. God, there's only one rule god damn it be kind oh uh, there is yeah him. yeah yeah. i love he because he's that mixture of intelligence cynicism and absolute big big heart and a teacher too like he like his story stuff he's is so kind, pretty amazing and brilliant i remember reading breakfast of champions on a, i used to read a lot on greyhound buses you know during school and traveling that's that's why i got around the country and uh for some reason, I was always reading Kurt Vonnegut. I remember that, well, that feels right for some yeah, reason. He was just, oh, I, lo I love his brain. Well, this may be like, I was going to say, is there a book or a film or a play that you think everyone, you not everyone, but everyone should see? Do you have something like if somebody said, you know, show me, what are you guys doing with this storytelling stuff? Yeah. I think my favorite movie is Perfect World. Have you ever seen that? No. Clint Eastwood directed it with Kevin Costner. Oh, I'm... It's a, Kevin Costner plays this the amazing thing it's just a great story it's not like it doesn't change the world but it's such a great story it's so and it's just perfectly executed all around and and it's not a spoiler alert that Kevin Costner plays this ex-convict that is it's kind of a road movie he escapes with his little kid and it's kind of a road movie of these two guys it's like but 
Kevin Costner is a bad guy in this one scene, which I won't tell you what it is, where you see his evil. And for a star to do that, it was like, you go, that's, it makes you hate him. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you still can sympathize with but it's like, but it's not like, no, it's, it's genuinely awful. He demonstrates cruel, and it was like, so jarring, but, and it's a beautiful, and it has a, it's just beginning, middle, and end. But in terms of, um, Oh, Saving Private Ryan. Uh, there's a book about uh, called uh, The Brothers K by David James Duncan. No one's ever heard of him. He wrote The River Why. Mm. But The Brothers K is probably the best book I've ever read. It, it took me like three times to get it started. It's kind of a little epic. It's not huge, but it's about this family in the northwest of the United States. It's kind of about baseball. It's one of the f- I laughed out loud reading it. And I also cried. Oh, uh, what, what more do you want? And I would love to make a film of it. Oh, that's and cool. I would love to make a film of it. And I'll link. I'll link to the show notes yeah. so everybody can can yeah, find the book. Yeah. Um, any Steve McQueen? I just even though I know he battered his wife and all, but The Great Escape was just it's great. That's a great movie. And I know you have an amazing Kevin Costner story, that, but we'll tell that yeah. we'll tell that in round yeah. two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, what do people say your superpower is? Oh, I don't think they do. <laughs> hey, Come on, man. You've been a working actor for a long time. That's that in itself is super amazing. Uh, uh, well, it goes with the theme of the podcast is that we're all superheroes. Maybe so. a, a sense of humor, maybe. That's uh, what people to say. I don't, I don't know. I'd what buy that. Say. Yeah, I, uh, I know. I, well, I feel like that because I remember I worked on a movie, uh, uh, the, uh, what was it? Insidious 2. Okay. And it was the first, like, I sort of had a kind of lead in it, and I was very nervous. And I didn't relax until, like, the last three days. And then when I relaxed, I was funny, because I was just, you know, and the director, and I felt really, you know, I, I did enjoy the shoot a lot, but I really enjoyed the last three days, because I was like, oh, I belong here now, and I feel, and I was very comfortable. And I notice when I'm very comfortable somewhere, I'm not afraid to make jokes. Like, I work with Damien Chazelle on First Men, and I remember, you know, he just won an Oscar, and we were doing this scene, and I did this like the whole shoot. I was only there for a few days, but I did it in the audition. But I also did it, like we're, all this technical stuff, we're doing these launches and stuff, and all this stuff's going wrong. And we're having to wait a lot. That's not his fault. It's just, it's very technical with being historically accurate to these straps. And, I'm, and I had a character that he's sort of supervising this. So I'm sitting here the whole time, and I just was like, I'm starting to think the La La Land was a fucking fluke. Yeah. <laughs> and not because it's it, I guess part of it is a sense of humor is an absence of fear mm-hmm. so and like if you had a superpower when you're not using it fear will kill any power but for me I know if there's a superpower it, it's your true self and when I'm feeling really comfortable I'm comfortable making fun of myself and just yes yeah, so for me sense of humor means a lack of fear so that would be my superpower. And you would so other people would say that you would agree with that assessment. Would you say that as well, or I hope so. Yeah, I think so. I think so. That's a good one. It's a self defense too, though, because when I'm not comfortable, uh, well, well, for the family therapy edition of the book, <laughs> I remember with my dad. Like, if I made my dad laugh, then I felt safe. I mean, he, he wasn't. He wouldn't hurt me. But even older, I was like, I, I felt like I had to make him laugh because then that would validate me. Uh, I, get, oh, I, think shit. I get a lot of validation from if I can make someone laugh. 
that uh, that's a self-defense too. I think. Right. But I, just, I love to laugh. I love. I do think that when you laugh, you feel less alone. Going back to that thing. I mean, Richard Pryor made me feel that. Um, I just felt it. Just it feels so great to laugh. It's, yeah. You know, Patton Oswalt, John Mulaney. Um, but yeah, that's my superpower. That's cool. Uh, do you have a favorite failure? Something you've learned from that's kind of changed what you do? And kind of you've you've grown from. I mean, we, we may have already. I've had a lot of failures, um, and and I went through a period of terrible failure. Boy, I think. Well, you know, one of those failures was that time where I was, you know, I was not prepared. That was probably the best failure that felt good later when I was, you know, was not prepared for that rehearsal, and the director said that was incredible. And right. Like, Thank you very much. So it's not intended. But uh, I think fa- to to look back at. I mean, I've had personal failures where at the time, you know, I, I hurt people, I hurt myself. I was just an asshole, a selfish, um, and, and just behaved terribly, lying, the kind of stuff where you can't look at yourself in the mirror. And, and I, I know that survived stuff. it, and I became better because of that. And, and professionally, I've had failures that I'm, I can't believe I made it through because they were just so, acting is so heartbreaking sometimes where you just get set up. If, if we talk again, I'll tell you, it's just a, off a story that you just like I came so close to quitting I remember driving home from it from Mississippi sobbing just sobbing thinking my life is a mis-, you know because when they, you, you make a choice in your life and it's like I've made the wrong choice it was one of those moments I was like 20 no I was like 34 had a young child and a baby at home had an 8, 9 year old as well and I thought I've made a mistake I chose a career that I'm not going to succeed at. Well, so, I can't, I can't yeah. wait till next time to hear the story. I mean, do you feel like telling the story? Yeah, I'll tell it next time if you want. I, I mean, I would, I'll, can we tell it now? Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I can't oh, sure. leave that. Oh, okay. Well. I mean, if you're comfortable doing yeah, it now. Oh, no. Yeah, sure. Well, it was, um, poof, it's, uh, and every, I think a lot of actors have had this happen, where it was at a period where, it, back again, back in the days where there wasn't a lot of opportunity in Atlanta. It was, I think, 93, 94. And part of it too is that it goes back to I had a like I got a huge response when I got out of school and I thought I was gonna I remember a friend saying wow just think what your career is gonna be like in ten years and ten years from there I was working in a, in a restaurant in Atlanta and they were doing a film of um, so um, back in the nineties remember John Grisham was huge he was just like any book of his that came out um, was just a sensation and, and he had a book <clears throat> I think it was one of his first books if not his first called A Time to Kill mm. and Sandra Bullock was a huge star and she was going to do it Samuel Jackson was going to do it and it was Matthew McConaughey who no one had heard of it was his first film or first major film after what it was Days and Confused yeah Days and Confused but so, so it was a big deal Warner Brothers was going to do it and Joel Schumacher was going to direct and he was big he was doing the Batman movies and they came, they were shooting in Mississippi, but they came, Joel Schumacher, I guess he was in town doing press for Batman, uh, his Batman movie. But it came, I, I think, you know, I'd been working, but I hadn't worked in a while, and I remember feeling really, like, guns, not, not unconfident, but like, you know, again, Charlie Brown in the football, I'm not going to leave the house. To, I think I had a couple callbacks for stuff, and I hadn't gotten it, and I thought, nothing's happening. And going back to, I thought, I had expected more of myself at this point in my life. I thought, you know, I was supposed to be somewhere and I wasn't. And God damn, uh, I relate to that. Yeah. 
And that's not, you know, that is not a good feeling. Like, oh, this is, yeah. So they're coming to town. I get this audition for his, you know, Time to Kill. And, and my memory of it is there was a sort of a general audition first. It was at a hotel on Peachtree, I guess. Mally Finn, the Warner Brothers casting director, was there. She's a British woman, very nice. And she met me and said, I think you should read for the role of Mickey Mouse. And she says, very nice role. So I go home that night and read the book. And we'll bring you in tomorrow and you'll read the scene. And so I guess that was a Saturday and then coming in Sunday. So I read the book and then Mickey Mouse in the book is this incredible character. He's an FBI undercover guy that ends up going undercover with a clan. He ends up uh, getting betrayed and they burn him to death and Sandra, he dies in Sandra Bullock's arms. It's a great, really nice part. I thought, okay, okay, I'll, Charlie Brown will come downstairs. I'll give the football a little kick. Right. So I read for her the next day and she goes, oh, that's wonderful. I want you to meet Joel, uh, Joel Schumacher. So I'm like, okay, so I, okay, I've inched a little further outside the, uh, um, the door towards Lucy holding the football. So then a couple days later, I go down, the callbacks are at the Ritz-Carlton. And I go to the Ritz-Carlton, and there's this beautiful waiting room with tea and coffee for us. There's not, like, anyone else reading for my role. There's, like, about seven actors there, you know, or maybe not less than that. It was, like, four actors. And they're all reading for different roles. So it's, like, you're being treated with real dignity and very respectful. So then I get called in, and there's Joel Schumacher, and I forget the name of the producer there in the room. And I do the two scenes, and then there's a pause. And I could not have written their responses better. It was just like, he said, who are you? Where have you been? You're from Atlanta? Where did you, you're, I felt like I had met this. It was a feeling of being discovered. Right. He made me feel, we talked for like 20 minutes. He goes, where did you train? Are you this, that, this? This is, you just nailed the character. This is one, you know, I, I, and I left just floating I thought this is it I think this is it so about a week goes by and I get a call from my agent saying Warner Brothers call they're very interested in you for this role and I was like oh so this is like June of 94 maybe somewhere around there and I'm like okay Warner Brothers called okay great well then another time goes by more weeks go by and he goes, no, you're still in the mix. You're still in the mix. And then like a month goes by. It's getting into August. It's like two months. And I'm like, and now there's, there's a local casting director. Uh, what was her name? She's a very wonderful woman. She was out of Tennessee. But she's doing the local casting. And they said, she says you're still, you're really in the mix. The director really liked you. But then I'm reading things in the trades. Like they started shooting in September. <laughs> I'm like, Okay. Then they go, no, you're still, you're probably not that role anymore. So I'm like, okay, but the director really likes you. I was like, okay, because that, that has a connection there, really. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Uh, so finally they say, you've been cast, they have the role for you, you're playing the Klansman. Okay, and they're sending you a script. So they send the script, and this is back before, you know, you'd get actual hard copies. So I'm reading the script. There's no the Klansman. And there's a big scene, it's like a 10-page scene, of a big riot where these Klansmen confront these anti-Klansmen in this town square. And I'm like, well, he's... So I'm really kind of puzzled. He starts getting feeling crazy because it's like, there's no the Klansmen. There's Klan people. Like, okay. They're paying me... And this is back then, again, double scale. They're paying a lot of money for me at that point for about 10 days of work. I was like, wow, this is That's, right. you know? that's so, a lot of money. They, 
it must be a significant role. They're bringing me out there for 10 days, but it's really weird. So I get there, staying in a really nice hotel suite and in, I guess it was Jackson, Mississippi, and they're shooting about maybe a half hour north of Jackson. I still don't know what I'm doing. So the morning comes, I'm getting in the van from the hotel. There's just one other person on the van. It's this older woman, and she's the costume designer for the film. She's an old friend of Joel Schumer. She goes, so what, are, what role are you playing? I went, I'm actually not sure. I'm playing the Klansman. She goes, oh, Joel always, he, he'll find an actor who he just loves, and he, but he just brings them in, and then he finds some really good, and I was like, okay. Oh, so you're feeling great again. There we go. Yeah, I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> I'm kicking the football. Like, well, there we go. And he's just, okay. So I'm, I, oh, okay. So my shoulders relax for the first time in two months. And I get there, and I get the makeup, and they're grunging me up, giving me this, that. I look all dirty, and then I get my robe, a Klanman robe, and I'm thinking, well, yeah, I'm a Klansman. Because they're going to be shooting this big riot the next, for the next, like, four days or so. Uh, uh, we're going to be shooting this big, this riot scene where, you know, there's a choir, there's a black choir, and there's a black crowd, and then there's a white Klansman, and they confront each other, and there's speeches, and the thing, the, and a whole lot of stuff going on. And today, now they would shot it in probably a day. But So the holding area, is, this is like 5 o'clock in the morning, then it's like 6.30. They take us to this little chapel in this square where they're holding the, the principal actors. And there's me, and they've got, I guess, Samuel Jackson somewhere, and Fender Bullock somewhere. The, but then sitting next to me is this young woman, and I think her name was Buttercup, this young African-American woman, uh, sort of heavy set. She's a singer. Her role is someone sings a hymn as a, you know, to rile up the crowd. Her name is Buttercup. She's very sweet. So I'm sitting next to Buttercup. And we, you know, just like, well, and I'm feeling, I'm back in the saddle. <laughs> I still don't know what the hell I'm going to be doing. So Joel Schumacher walks in. This is the first time I've seen him since that glorious you callback. You guys have bonded. And Buttercup and I both stand up. And he just, his eyes light up. And I'm like, ah, and he goes like that. And I'm about, I'm starting to walk towards him, and he goes, Buttercup! And I was like, okay, okay, okay. Oh. He gives her a big hug, and I'm like, well, he just saw her first. And I'm sure when he sees me, he's like, Steve, because the last thing he said was, can't wait. I think he even said, can't wait to work with you. I was like, he looks over Buttercup's shoulder and looks at me, not just unfamiliar, but as if I'm a threat. And he goes, who are you? Oh, my. <laughs> and I said, I'm, and I smiled. I went, I'm the Klansman. And he just looked with his, his face just went flat, and he went, I've got a lot of Klansmen. And he turned and walked out. And I'm like, okay. So then it became a thing of, and one of my biggest, if I had a, not a fear, but a feeling of my Achilles heel, like you talked about my superpower. No kidding. My kryptonite is feeling invisible and feeling, just feeling invisible. Like if someone not returning your calls drives me crazy because I think, and I became invisible. So I had to go like, where do I go? Because I'm not, and I don't want to be an asshole and go like, I'm not an extra. I'm not background. I have a principal role. But I really was basically a very highly paid background player. It was back when I had like no. It's like my third thing I'd done. I'd done like a couple of TV movies. I think it was my first feature film I did. And so I'm around this. So I work for like three, four days, and I'm just I've got a hood. Up. First of all, then I get a sunburn. 
<laughs> which is great. And I have a hood on my head most of the time. I'm not doing anything. And I finally, after like six days, and I'm sitting around, and no one knows sort of like why I'm there. You know, it's like... Yeah, they don't know what to do with you. And there was one woman, going back to not feeling alone, there was a woman who was like, not a PA, I think she was like maybe a PA. She was like an executive PA. She was like... And she walked over, and she goes... And this is after like five days. She goes, this must be agony for you. It's like, I know you're, you're getting paid, you're getting to work with them, but you're not getting to do your job. They don't have anything for you to do. Oh, I mean, so almost, she got it. Yeah, I almost cried. I was just like... And I felt like she did... But no one else... And I finally went up to Joel Schumacher. I would have gone up sooner. Like after, and I went... I don't know if you remember me, but we... I, I had a great audition, and I just, I'm not sure, I'm really not sure what happened or why I'm here. Because it was really odd. I've never had an experience anything close to that. I've been cut from things and stuff. And he was sort of trying to avoid it. He wasn't mean, but he sort of avoided my luck. And he said, well, the, the things just changed. But I did get to talk to that producer who was in the room, and he was very kind. He goes, we had a role for you, and then we didn't. But they, we still wanted to bring you out. I mean, we'll hope, we were thinking to find something for you to do, but it's been such an you know, massive shoot. We just never, and you kind of got lost in the shuffle. So I think, you know, so it was good. Like, I made a bunch of money, which was good for that time because I was a young dad. And but it, so I remember driving back from, it was just, and I felt, yeah, I, that's good. Like, I didn't want to, I'll have a credit and all that. But I remember driving back, I chose to drive, I took the travel stipend instead of flying. I drove back from uh, Mississippi to Atlanta. And, and I remember at times just sobbing because I thought I've made, uh, because I'd, like I said, I'd finally come out to kick the football. I thought this was, and you do tend to think I only have, you only get a couple of footballs. You think, you know, this is it. This was my chance. Right. And now, when's it going to come? And again, it wasn't like now when it's a lot busier. It's like one or, you know, for hardly, hardly any feature films were shot here. And no. I thought I'd made a huge mistake. And I, was, and I had financial and career obligations, and I just thought, like, who, that the voice in my head was like, who, who are you kidding? Who do you think you are? You really thought this is your big break? You just made it all. I, mean, I didn't make up what they said to me, but it, no, I but made your up brain what I starts built up, and I just thought this is gonna, you know, because yeah, I thought you need a mentor, and I thought this is the guy that I had. I had a friend of mine. He was taken under the wing of a director, and he got an agent, and I thought this was it. I thought it was the break. And it was very hard to come back. I remember just being just really cynical after that. Well, what? Did I, so how, how did you? It was, and then I and I had another brief, terrible. <laughs> I remember because part of it like this: oh, you're in the time to kill, and you don't want to go. Yeah, but you won't see me. Yeah, I'm the guy with the hood on. But then very soon after that, I did. This is this is a briefer story, but kind of equally like. And that's why it's, you just have to keep going. We don't have to. You can choose to stop. But I came very close to quitting. Uh, Around that time, a friend of mine offered me a chance to teach, like at a school, or, you know, and I didn't take it. Um, but I had a, a, a role, not a big role, but a nice role in uh, John Frankenheimer, the legendary director of, you know, the, oof, the train and, and all that. And he was a friend of he, Bobby Kennedy, who spent the night, the night before he died, in John Frankenheimer's house. Oh, wow. Um, but he was directing, uh, it was a, like a two part. Sort of TV movie for uh, TNT called Andersonville about the notorious. Oh yeah, and I played this character was called Old Soldier Number One or whatever. But he had this really wonderful monologue when the when the Union prisoners come in. I was a Union prisoner. I have this long monologue where I introduce them. 
to the camp and how it works and this and you gotta watch it was a nice it was a nice little roll and i lost like 10 15 20 pounds because you know and i and they made me and then so it was one of the first days of filming first of all we had to wait around a lot but hey, i'm gonna be working with john frankenheim legend in film and so they're sending us to the set to rehearse and um are we okay oh and as i'm getting to the set i hear my lines being said and I'm like, yeah, my face did that too. That's <laughs> another, another. And I'm like, and this was not long. This is like six months after this time to kill experience. And I'm like, well, I said, well, maybe the some PAs or the stand-ins or whatever are just running the lines for camera. And they're not. The director had decided to break up the monologue. It would be better not one person say it, and to have it. He gave it to these other characters without even asking. Like I hadn't even. It wasn't like. I'd done them, I'd said it, and I didn't do it well. I hadn't even said the lines yet. He had just given the lines away without ever, again, my kryptonite of being invisible. Right. And once again, I'm like, what do I, in, in, in hindsight, again, I wish I would say, excuse me, first I would have wanted an explanation because like, fuck it, who gives a shit? It's like, I've already lost the lines. Right. And so once again, I became for another, I was there for about a week or so, I became a highly paid background and and no and it'd be different if and i like again i've been cut out of films i've been you know and that's disappointing but then there it's like an artistic choice but, but you've done the work so yeah how do you how do you come back from that yeah well I about to say, you don't come back no, and i do remember i started doing i didn't write right away but i remember i was doing drama i worked with some kids I, i'd gotten a grant to do uh, acting with addicts. Uh, Target used to do. The, it, was, it was I forget what it was an organization in the city, but you'd get a grant. I'd go in and create plays with ad, like street addicts and stuff. And I did that a lot. Um, so it was kind of directing and writing with them. And then I ended up doing it with all sorts of different. And I worked with a lot of kids at that time. So I guess a lot of that artistic energy went into that sort of directing and writing. And then, I, because I, I don't remember any big roles, I did some TV movies here and there. But I think that's what sort of led me to the, because uh, I remember reading that Billy Bob Thornton had gotten really restless with just doing day player stuff. He had a couple of sort of nice roles. But he, had, he created that character from uh, a Sling Blade. And so he wrote a short film called This Is, this is a Sling Blade. Or, or like they call it a Sling Blade or something like that. I remember that. And it's really interesting because parts of it are, are it's, it's literally just a section of the film. It's about 20 minutes. And, and you could tell like one of the actors is not very good and they ended up getting there. But it's that character. And that's right around then is when I found that book. Uh, I probably about, maybe it was like 98 or so, 97, 98. And then started... And, and I'd had the book for about a year, wanting to do something with it. And then this Dark Knight Theater, I created those monologues. So I think that led to the self-generating work. Because, um, yeah, I don't remember acting-wise going, but that was the first, I think that character and the response it got and the feeling of working on that rekindled that passion. Well, that makes such sense because you were just in two positions where, you know, totally an actor control. is like exactly the lowest man on the totem pole anyways. Yeah practically on that, a, on a that, set and really you took the power that, back that lack of power really because that yeah i did take the power back i love that um, yeah i didn't i never well thank you this is <laughs> we've no, made a breakthreakthrough really here today yeah, on the podcast it wasn't like 
Oh, the acting world did, did not throw me any kind of bone that made me go, oh, yeah, I should keep doing this. It was more like, yeah, maybe you should keep. But again, going back to like these Dark Knight performances, only hundreds, a few hundred people saw them. But there's unmistakable. That's when I first met Melissa McBride, who's oh, wow, yeah. She was doing a little bit of videography behind the scenes, you know, for who? I don't know, whoever saw it. We had, we had public access. We were doing public access stuff of like interviews. Again, like 17 people saw that. Um, but yeah, but I met some of, some of my best friends I have now. Was, the first one we did was back 89, but the Etiquette Man was, God, the Etiquette Man was like 91. So that was even, so I guess he had been sort of percolating behind that. In terms of deciding to do the film, that's when I think we. Um, Fuck it, I'll do it myself. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Yeah, and we did, <laughs> and it led to a lot. I mean, that's what they say. Lot. I mean, honestly, yeah. like that's what they say. The blueprint used to be, and I guess probably yeah. still is. There's just more avenues to do it. Like create your own work. Somebody will notice it. You It'll lead to something. And, like, and we did. Like, you lay it seeds. Ended up cost, I told you it cost like fifty three thousand dollars to shoot the entire production budget with post production going to film festival was over a hundred thousand dollars. And that's insane. Like, how do we? Do that's it? insane. But it worked. But you think about it, like actually, you know, we actually. We sold the film, like, and we actually made we probably made about ten thousand dollars. But in terms of if you think of the the Tyler Perry job, it paid for itself way more than that. And yeah. just reward, like, I, the life experience of like doing that film by itself. I do highly recommend self generating your work because the adventure, even though, like I said, it was on the cover of these newspapers and got a lot of attention, and uh, uh, but the best thing was the was doing it, was writing it and shooting it, and the terror. Of how are we gonna get the money and the ups and downs, the adventure of shooting it, and the actual on-set shooting is—that's oh my god, some of my favorite moments of my. So is this a? Can I see this film? No, it's it's owned by. I, I'm actually going to. It's on DVD. Okay. But I'm gonna get it. I want to get it digitized so I can so people can see it more because now I can't. It's not in any digital form that I could send out. I gotcha. Because it's a good, it's timeless, really. That sounds, I don't mean like this time. <laughs> yeah. It's not dated. You can really, I mean, I'm 20 years younger. Right. But it's a really, uh, it's it's not dated, the message and the humor of it. Yeah. Because uh, I saw it recently about a year ago. I was like, oh. That stands up. It was a series. Was, that's another, that's a story for another day, too. I gotcha. A Hollywood story. It's not pretty. But it's <laughs> learned. Love to learn. Tell me the uh, tell me the bad advice you hear given to actors or writers. Oh boy! Uh, and then we'll get you out of here. Maybe one of the, not um, for writers is like maybe just write what you know because that's an, I, I I've thought that because it's, I don't think that's the case because you think some of the best stuff and I think I've heard that I think the Westworld writers may have said that as well or look at like Stranger Things I think I just read an article they were like that couple was yeah, interviewed yeah. and Stranger Things guys they didn't they didn't grow up they weren't the age of those you know, they, but they loved those movies and TV shows um, the why and again I mean not, it's not to not write what you know but like for example The Etiquette Man that's nothing I'm very proud of that I wrote for Tyler Perry I guess write what your soul knows, but your soul can know a lot of stuff, not necessarily your life experience. Because I'm like a little middle-class white Canadian guy. You know, I wrote for Tyler Perry and about black families. But I knew about love and disappointment and sadness and, you know. I'd, but So that maybe for writers is... Uh, or maybe like, you know, there's, there's, there's one way of doing it. I, th I think I'm kind of corny. Like, set your dream and... 
you might get something else. But um, as for actors, well, well, you may not hear bad advice being given, which would be a nice thing. Well, no, I see a lot of bad stuff being told. Well, yeah, you're not enough. That was the, the advice: is that you're not enough. You need this. I mean, you got you got to work hard and put in the time. But if you have a talent for it, that's enough. But go to work. Get really work on it. But I hate when people say, "Well, you gotta have, you gotta shoot. You, you need to have the highest. You need to have like a dolly camera. You need to have a room, and so you need to have a blue background." And it just make sure it's good. Just, just right. you know, be good and be kind. Uh, Where can people find you online? Uh, if you want to be found, I'm, uh, I'm at at um, uh, Facebook. Steve Coulter. I don't know what the look for Steve Coulter. And there's a picture of me and my kids on the front. Uh, Twitter. I'm. At Coulter28, I think. I'll be linking. I'll link to these as well to show that. And Twitter, I'm not good. I think, as I I was telling you earlier (laughs) yesterday, that I have a nine-year-old stepson, and he is teaching me about Twitter. I've posted ten things. Uh, Not Twitter. uh, uh, Instagram? Instagram. Twitter, I'm pretty good at. I'm pretty good. In Twitter, I'm at Coulter28 as well. All right. What is the 28 from? Was that just like those 28 Steve Colders before you? Is that like your no, number soccer? Number. It's a weird number that is in my life. It's a lot of things used to happen. Oh, that's fun. Not so much anymore. But I've always had. Oh, now everyone's. That's why. It's not my password. It's not my password. <laughs> it was for a while. I had a number. But yeah, it's just had a number of those. Always, that's funny. Yeah. It's, it has been significant. Oh, that's. I thought I was going to die when I was 28. So I was really glad. I don't know if I. I was really convinced, and I was, at the time when I was twenty-eight. I think I was working in a bar, and uh, just like a superstitious I, kind of thing. You thought? Yeah, you were it really was. It had a lot of good connotations, but I really, for some reason, I thought because it just kept popping up. So I was very afraid, and I had a friend at the time who didn't help foster that belief that I was going to. What kind of friend would help foster that belief? But they were trying to take it. That the night of my birthday, they made sure they were around me. This was just a friend that uh, she she sort of made sure I was safe until midnight because she thought I might die too. Oh, that's amazing! Yeah. There's a guy in my theater company who has a one-man show, and he grew up Lower East Side, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day. And I think like nobody, and I'm gonna I'm gonna bastardize this a little bit. Sorry, Juan. Um, like nobody in his family lived past 32. Wow. Wow. Like all the men. And so, like, you know, that was always, you know, when he's in his late 20s, this is always out there coming. Um, that's like, oh, that's interesting. That is. That's cool. Like, I was lucky. I didn't have that luck. I just had some weird feeling that I was going to die. And I did. It's not like I lived my life spectacularly that last year. It's more like, I hope I don't die. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much thank you. for being on the podcast. Thank I really you. enjoyed thank this. You. Me and, too. This uh, has been delightful. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Origin Story Podcast. The show is produced by Pinecone Turkey. To learn more about Pinecone Turkey, visit pineconeturkey.com, where you can sign up for the Flock email, a twice-a-month newsletter that delivers a short film, poetry, a short story, and visual art right to your inbox. It's your monthly dose of art curated by Pinecone Turkey. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by leaving us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening.